Let me ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Good to sing with you today. Several empty seats, but good singing as well. And um, I don't know if it's apologies that are due or not, but I know that one hymn, the second hymn, Step Out on the Promise, more of a gospel song in some ways. Usually sing that in the evening rather than the morning. But, um, well, it was quite relevant, I think, to the passage that we come to today as certainly Hart's hymn that we've just preached through. I said it before, I say it again, it's always difficult to preach after all the stanzas of Hart's great hymn because it's truly a sermon in its own right. But I want us to begin reading today in verse 30 of Romans 9, and we're going to read through the 10th chapter. The 10th chapter will be where the bulk of our thoughts focus today. We're going in some ways embarrassingly quickly through these three chapters that we began to introduce last Lord's Day. We could pause in some ways upon each verse because there's a wealth certainly in each one, but I don't want us to lose the flow of thought, and so I want us to read from verse 30, as I said in chapter 9, today through chapter 10. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed." Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach." that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Just pause, just note Paul's use of the word gospel when he will refer to Old Testament references. They've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words into the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold, and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Well, amen. Linda reading, trusting again the Lord to add his own blessing to the public reading of his word. Let's bow our heads again together. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice at the truth we've sung from Your Word and in meditations upon Your Word. And in these, Lord, in many ways, very familiar words, at least some phrases in this section we have read, many of us have known, many of us have committed to memory from our youth. Well, Lord, give us grace in meditating upon them today. Give us understanding of your word together. We pray it in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. Well, we find ourselves today working through this section that we introduced last week, chapters 9 to 11 in Romans. I don't want to re-preach last week's message, and yet we need to review enough to grasp the context of what's being argued in the section that is before us. While there are many that view this as a postscript, or as I suggested, what was very familiar to me in my upbringing, chapters 9 to 11 viewed as a a parenthesis in Paul's argument, we feel it best to view this as another one of the many times in which Paul anticipates a possible objection to his teaching or a question that would come in the minds of his reader and then takes up that question to deal with it. It's just that in this case, this question that has popped up, as it were, is very real. It is very personal. Paul is himself intimately connected with this question because it's a question that has to do, again, with Israel. If, as Paul has argued in chapter 8, our salvation is secure and we can have assurance based upon the eternal and gracious purposes of God in election, why is it that Israel, whom God also elected, is now fallen away and outside of Christ? We can see that that's a serious question. Well, in, nine, in chapter 9 and verse 6, Paul begins to answer this question and read with me again those words. Paul says there, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. He's, as I said, had a little bit of a personal 
introduction to this chapter when he shows how intimately he's connected with it. A little bit more in a second on that. But he starts to touch the problem. Not as though the Word of God hath taken none effect. Well, how can that be? Israel is in mass, in unbelief. And yet they're God's covenant people. They're promises that belong to them. There's an election that God made of them. Amos 3.2 You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Well, the answer is, as he continues in that verse, not as though the Word of God hath taken none effect. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And so there is a distinction to be made between national and spiritual Israel. So when Paul deals with this problem, it is, it is not that God's Word hasn't taken effect. It is that there's a true Israel and there's a national Israel. Here he takes up the Old Testament theme of the remnant. What Paul's teaching and alluding to in these chapters of a remnant among the Israelites is nothing new. There were seasons in the Old Testament where the masses of Israel were in unbelief. But then, just as today, there was a remnant according to the election of grace. And then secondly, he's going to come in chapter 11 to the fact that in the future God will visit the nation again so that many within that body will finally embrace Christ and be part of the true Israel themselves. Revival will come to the nation. There's a season in which that nation is cut off. He's going to use a vivid picture in chapter 11 of an olive tree with natural branches broken off and yet wild branches grafted in. We've looked at that many times in the past as what a picture it is of the one people of God throughout all the ages. It is the heart and soul of what we call our covenantal theology. And so Paul, I say, is dealing with this question of Israel and their being, it seems, cut off. So as he works through his answer, he has to show what distinguishes that unredeemed Israel from redeemed Israel. And last week, if I can remind you of our points, and actually the last point of last week in some ways will be the first point of this week, and I want to give them out of order. This was my second point put before you last week. It's more of a practical one. But in chapter 9, we see that election is no barrier to a passion for souls. Paul could not have found stronger terminology than he said, I could wish that I myself would be accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's written in the middle of two chapters that touch those very sensitive topics of election and even reprobation. And those truths are not a barrier to a passion for souls. They're not a barrier at all to the exercise of evangelism. But our other points were these. That election is purely gracious. Election is purely gracious. And if you think through what he dealt with in our previous chapter, he talked about Abraham. And he had a son, Ishmael. Ishmael was one pursued, as we know, after the flesh, not according to the promise. But here he was, 
a natural offspring of Abraham. I mean, it's hard to get closer to Abraham than Ishmael. But Israel's lost. And then he goes and answers the further objection. Yes, but Israel didn't flow from the promise. Isaac was of the promise, and so Isaac's seed, except Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And one of Isaac's sons, one that did come through the line of the promise, is lost. And one is not. What's the difference? Well, our third point last week was this. Election issues in saving faith. Why is Israel cut off today? Why are Israel estranged from Christ? Because of unbelief. He takes up this theme in Hebrews quite pointedly of that generation that left Egypt. That was the generation that had seen the wonders. I think I paused for this last week, if not, or maybe in one of our prayer meetings, but I drew upon that greatly in our seminary classes recently dealing with the doctrine of perseverance. Because Hebrews 6 is one of those Difficult chapters about people that have been enlightened and tasted of the world to come and of the the Holy Ghost and they fall away and it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. The writer says, we're persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation, meaning you can have a lot of this other stuff and not be saved. And you think of the context there of that generation that left Egypt. The generation that conquered the land. The generation that by faith saw the waters of the Jordan dried up. Saw the walls of Jericho fall down. Saw God work wonders and grant them the promise. Were not the ones that partook of the Passover. They were not the ones that saw the plagues in Egypt. The generation that saw those was lost in large measure. Caleb and Joshua were there. But in large measure, they were in unbelief. So it is that in our time, there can be those that have a lot of experience in the church and around the things of God. They can even witness God doing great things in His church and in the lives of others. They can for a season profess and look like they belong. But ultimately, they walk away. It's evidence that grace was never there. That generation couldn't enter in because of unbelief. And so, election issues in saving Faith. The difference between mere national Israel and the true Israel is the matter of faith and unbelief. And so when we come to chapter 10, Paul begins to flesh this out. What has this national Israel done instead of embracing Christ by faith? They stumbled at that stumbling stone. And again, notice Paul's quotation there of the Old Testament promise. As it is written, verse 33, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. Whosoever believes 
on him shall not be ashamed. This whole matter that Paul has been building up, that he's been expounding, justification by faith alone, the imputed righteousness of Christ alone, is what they were to have believed in the Old Testament. So when we come to chapter 10, and I say Paul begins to flesh out What has this national Israel done? What have the masses of these people done instead of embracing Christ? Well, they've stumbled at the stumbling stone. So I want to put before you today two thoughts. And as I said, the first one is quite parallel to our last point from last week. And this is one of those times where I'm worried that the message could either be exceedingly short or exceedingly long because, well, there are great matters that are here. There are many side thoughts that could and perhaps should be taken up. But all of these things and even the, the truths, the, the doctrines that Paul has touched on here, I mean, he's touched on election, he's touched on reprobation, he's touched on the matter of the eternal decree. Well, theologians for centuries have wrestled about the decrees of God. We talked a little bit about the order of the decrees and the superlapsarians and the infralapsarians and all the wrestling and struggling with that. Well, I think that is one of those areas where even as good Reformed people, we can begin to enter into the secret things that belong to God. You start reading theologians, and some of the men I respect and have benefited from greatly But when they start using phrases like a rational mind has to work this way, well, God's not irrational, but there are things in the mind of the infinite that are a little higher, a little more complex than our finite minds can grapple with. There may be some things about God we can't put into a flow chart. And that's okay. Actually, we would rather have a God like that than one we could plug into a flow chart. Because then he wouldn't really be infinite. He wouldn't really be God. But I say these difficult matters that Paul mentions, Paul's not afraid of dealing with election. He's not afraid of dealing even with that Sober matter of reprobation. And you think about those things. He he brings them up because they're part of the argument, but he doesn't bring them up to expound them. He doesn't bring them up to explain them. He doesn't enter into the philosophical reasonings of theologians. He just states the truths that are there. He approaches, yeah, the the fringe or the, the, the border, if you will, But he doesn't try and pull the curtain back and give answers to what's back there. The pieces of it that we know are pretty clear. They should be. When he says there through Moses, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Well, ponder that. Mercy, mercy is when God looks upon us in our fallen sinful condition And He chooses to have mercy upon some of us. Mercy, grace, introduces something new into the situation. 
He looks at those that are guilty. He looks at those that have been described in chapters 1, 2, and 3 who have, are in sin and who fall short of the glory of God. We deserve His wrath. And yet He's chosen to do something else. Mercy introduces something new to the situation. Mercy breathes life into the dead. We're described elsewhere in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Grace has introduced that. There's a creative act of God. Remember what we read in Ephesians. Who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. It's a work of resurrection grace where God breathes life into a dead sinner and brings him to faith in Jesus Christ. So mercy introduces something new to the situation. Justice simply deals with what's already there. And for the rejecter of Christ, for the sinner, the one who is outside, his condemnation, his sinfulness, his willful rejection is already there. And when it even comes to the point, as we suggested last time, of Pharaoh brought in and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart or the hardening of any sinner's heart, as God engages even in that sovereign work of hardening, He's only confirming the sinner and what He already is and in His willful choice to stay that way. So I say Paul touches these truths but he doesn't bring them up to expound them. He just admits quite obviously that they're there. <coughs> but as we come today to consider then the following pieces of this discussion, I want to put these two thoughts, two statements before you. First, faith is the indispensable result of God's election. When Paul comes in this chapter and he begins to deal with this problem of Israel, if you will, he's closed chapter 9 by saying, what has happened? We see it. Gentiles that don't have the Scriptures. Gentiles who historically have been outside. They've attained to righteousness. Because they, in large measure, are repenting and believing this message of good news when Christ is preached to them. But Israel isn't receiving this. Those in Israel that are lost, those in Israel that you have questioned about, does God's election fail sometimes? It is evident that they're outside of that decree of election because they press on in unbelief. The whole issue of attaining righteousness is put before us here in verse 30 and 31 of chapter 9. And then as he comes into the second verse of chapter 10, read with me again what Paul says. And Paul says and understands this by personal experience. I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now you ponder that. They're recipients of the Scriptures. But here it says they're ignorant. For they, verse 3 again, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness 
have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. What a picture of the unsaved religious mind. And I've suggested in many ways and in many different contexts in the past, that is the most oppressive mindset. Those are the ones that are the most vehemently opposed to the gospel. Because when you have a view of self-righteousness, and a message is brought to you that you can't merit righteousness yourself, that all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags, or to put it as Christ did, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no wise enter into the kingdom. The mindset of the unbelieving Jew is that he has the ability to produce righteousness. He has the ability to merit a right standing with God. And of course, what evolved in their apostasy and their unbelief is that this is impossible for the Gentiles. I mean, they're a lesser species. They're cut off entirely. They're dogs. And the good news that had come to them that they had refused. The Gentiles, people like you and me, are now hearing and receiving and rejoicing in. Faith is the indispensable result of God's election. Well, what is faith? You go through Romans already. You go through the rest of the Scriptures. How is faith put before us? How is it described? One of the things we've hammered for years, we need to keep holding it before ourselves and before others. There's so many today for decades. It's really been true through all the seasons of history. But we've been in a prominent time where saving faith has been misunderstood. It has been preached in a wrong way. Faith itself has been turned into a work. A natural man doesn't have the ability to do any work that merits glory. The very root of saving faith is an understanding that I can't merit my own salvation. The very heart and root of saving faith is an abandonment of hope in myself. And it is a placing of all my confidence and all my trust in the person and work of Christ in my place. Because my righteousness is ugly. My attempts to merit my own righteousness are an insult to God and an insult to His law. If you read the fifth verse of chapter 10, Paul says here, For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man that doth these things shall live by them. We saw that in Galatians 3 in our catechism proof text in Sunday school this morning. What is Paul doing here? He's doing the same thing that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. He's showing the truth. Showing the truth particularly to these with the question of Israel's pursuits of God that their self-righteousness, that their own pursuit of obtaining their own righteousness, they sought righteousness, chapter 9, not as it were by faith, but by the works of the law. 
for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Well, what is Paul doing here? Look at the law. Look at what Moses says. The man that does these things shall live by them. But what's he proved in chapters 2 and 3? Chapter 2 in particular with regard to Israel. They haven't done these things. They imagine they have. They preach against other people's sins, but look at them. They're sinful too. They may not outwardly transgress in every form, but yet if you understand the law of God, if you offend in one point, you're guilty of all. If you understand the law of God, that even in that one point, you offend not merely by with your hand going out and doing that thing, but by the thought and inclination of your heart that would desire such a thing. And so what is put before us here is again a demonstration of inability. It's a demonstration of the purity, the perfection of God's law and the inability of any sinner, Gentile or even Jew, to live up to that standard. That's where he says in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. And when he says that, this is one of those passages that the commentators have to struggle with. In some ways, what they struggle over, it, it doesn't matter. It hinges on how do we understand the word end. It can be understood as the end, meaning the termination, the, the final point of something. It can also be understood as a goal. And either way, there's a gospel application and understanding. If we take it as a goal, as some do, well, Christ is the end of the law. Christ has fulfilled the law. And that's entirely true. He's demonstrated that in chapters 3, 4, and 5. 5 in particular. But I think in the context here, it's not so much the goal that Christ is the goal of the law. Christ is the end of the law. He's the terminating point. There's no more need for us as sinners who don't possess the ability anyway. There's no more need for us to try to, as Israel, obtain our own righteousness. To go about to establish our own righteousness. It's impossible. It's an insult to think that it's possible. Christ is the end of the law. He's the end of self-righteous pursuits for us. We're dead to that. Chapter 7. And so here, Paul shows the impossibility of there being any other way. Faith is the indispensable result of God's election. Faith has as its peculiar quality that we abandon hope and self. That we cease holding up our works to God. We cease imagining that we can attain to righteousness on our own. We abandon that hope. And we by faith understand and believe Christ has fulfilled the law for us. It's Christ's righteousness. It's that alien righteousness that's counted as mine. And that's the beautiful gospel Paul has expounded and here shows why 
Israel in mass is cut off. They stumbled at that good news. They've gone about to establish their own righteousness because they're ignorant. You think about how that must sound to the Jew as the Gentiles are hearing Paul preaching. We're the, we're the ignorant ones. But that's what Saul of Tarsus came to understand. Turned his world upside down. Thank God it's turning ours upside down too. Faith is the indispensable result of God's election. Faith dispels every other hope. The impossibility of there being any other way than appropriating Christ, attaining His righteousness by faith. But secondly today, I just put this before you. Israel's unbelief is a sin against light. Israel's unbelief is a sin against light. We've seen already, as we said, as chapter 9 closes, they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. Whosoever believes on Him shall not be ashamed. But if you look with me starting in verse 14 of our chapter, Paul begins here after he has given that giant verse, verse 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, it's a a giant text. We can take that out of its context. We can take that anywhere and to any man. Preach the Gospel. Call upon Christ, you will be saved. There's a whole undercurrent we probably should mention here though we can't fully deal with it, but the whole point of the free offer of the Gospel. Election is no barrier to that. There's no man on this planet to whom we can't go and say, whosoever will believe will be saved. The caricatures of our theology are many. One caricature is, as well, if you believe that, then you won't evangelize because you don't know whether the person's elect or not. Well, of course. I don't see into the secret counsels of God. I just go forth with a bona fide offer. How can you be a bona fide offer? They're people Jesus didn't die for. It's a bona fide offer. Repent and believe and you will be saved. Because we understand the only way a sinner who's dead in trespasses and sins can be brought to repentance and faith is by the sovereign, supernatural work of the Spirit of God. But I can go to any dead sinner and say, repent and believe the Gospel and you will be saved. Step out on the promise. I wanted to sing that today because in seminary we were dealing with the warrant of faith. Hyper-Calvinists, and those aren't just people that believe all five of the points. Hyper-Calvinists drift sometimes unconsciously in the mindset you have to know whether you're elect or not before you can have assurance. No, you just have to step out on the promise. What is the warrant of faith? Me coming to understand and know and be told by some specific vision that I'm on the list of elect people? No. The warrant of faith, the ground of my possible believing, is God has promised. If I repent of my sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
I'll be saved. Step out on that promise. That's the gospel. And that's what every good Calvinist ought to be preaching. But here, he speaks about these calling. Well, how will they call on Him who they believed? How should they believe in Him if they had not heard? How should they hear without a preacher? How should they preach except they be sent? And then that poetic phrase really of the prophet, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings. Well, these tidings were brought to Israel. And Paul begins to rehearse just a catalog really of Old Testament quotations to show that light shining to them. Isaiah says, verse 16, Lord, who hath believed our report? This unbelief in the midst of national Israel isn't anything new. It's not merely a New Testament phenomenon. Isaiah put it out there in that giant pinnacle of messianic prophecy. The unbelief of Israel is front and center. And then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. But I say, have they not heard? Verse 18, yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, their words into the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I'll provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people. By a foolish nation I will anger you. The prophecies and promises of captivity for apostate Israel. Harbingers even of New Testament revelation here of the very days in which we live where Gentiles in mass are being saved. In verse 20, but Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. That's what he said in chapter 9. The Gentiles which didn't have the Bible. They were going their merry way. God sent the gospel to them. And many of them are hearing it and believing it. I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest to them that asked not after me. Isn't that a picture of the gospel? The depraved sinner? Again, down with these caricatures of this theology that somehow this produces sinners on their faces before God weeping and saying, God, save me, please. I see myself as unworthy. I see myself as a sinner. I repent of my self-righteousness. I acknowledge my inability to do anything to merit your presence. And God says, nope, not on the list. What folly. That's not what sinners left to themselves do. Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest to them that asked not after me. But to Israel he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands into a disobedient and gainsaying people. Israel's unbelief is a sin against light. They have and they are still stumbling at that stumbling stone. Ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness. We don't have time certainly today, but you could look at the history of the New Testament church. You could look at the evolution of Romanism. You can look at other forms and representations of apostasy and see that there are many, not in the name of Israel, but in the name of Christianity, 
that have fallen at the same stumbling stone, that have wanted to produce something of themselves that's worthy for God to accept instead of perfect righteousness. And that's not the gospel. Faith is the indispensable response to election. And Israel's unbelief is a sinning against light. They were given truth. They stumbled at it. Stubbornly wanting to feel better about themselves. If we could borrow some modern terminology. You want some good gospel terminology for the modern day? It's going to help you in every realm of life. First in salvation and then even in daily living. It's to do everything you can to start feeling better about Jesus and recognizing just how hopeless and helpless you were and are outside of Him. And then wondering, standing in amazement that He has received the likes of you by casting off any hope in yourself and embracing the person and work of His Son. Don't stumble at the simplicity and power of grace. Israel is stumbling. And Israel is sinning against life. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we come with thankful, indebted hearts. We sing often that we're debtors to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy, we sing. Nor fear with Thy righteousness on. So Lord, today, Give us grace, not merely understanding the pathway through an epistle, but seeing its demonstration of the power of the gospel. So prosper us today. Give us gospel hearts, we ask in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.